my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Bruna DePaulo. She is a neuroscience-based executive, leadership, and career coach, a keynote speaker, and trainer. Empowered by 20 plus years in corporate, working for global brands, along with studies in neuroscience and psychology, Bruna helps her clients expand their thinking, acting, and leading capabilities so they can perform at a higher level. Based on the latest scientific findings, her brain-based blended approach provides the perfect balance between coaching and mentoring to help clients make significant changes in their career. I'm going to talk with Bruna about many different things uh, today. And part of that is really how to develop better as a leader, how to understand how the brain works. And really, I just, I, I wanna dig into the conversation right off, off the bat. So Bruna, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and have this conversation with me and, and sharing your expertise with the audience. My pleasure, truly. Thank you for having me. I, I always like to start off with where uh, a person was born and raised, what their early life experiences were, what are, what are some of the events in their life that have shaped them and really created that passion within them. And <clears throat> the listeners can hear, you've got a little bit of an accent. Italian and and what's funny is that you're in London so when when we first started communicating I was expecting a, a British accent and where about in Italy were you were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Rome also known as the most beautiful beautiful city in the world so I'm really proud of that. What what was life like growing up in in Rome and and what did your what did your family do for a living? Uh, how was it growing up? How was it growing up should be a different question from how was it growing up in Rome. Um, let, let's start from the easiest. Growing up in Rome, uh, I used to live with my family in a little city near Rome, but I went to Rome very often. It was amazing. Rome, it is a stunning city. Uh, whatever you look at, you're always amazed. Even though you haven't been anywhere else, you can always recognize that there's a lot of cultural power in what you see it, it, it is stunning um, then the problem is that you get used to it and wherever wherever else you go your standards are always really high um, but it's beautiful also because it was full of tourists so I could see people literally from all over the world and that for a child of course was always beautiful and lots of good memories about the city and specifically about certain areas of the city where my parents uh, used to take us. Um, so in that sense, I, I can say it was amazing. Uh, on the other side, it was not that amazing. Um, I come from a, let's call it dysfunctional family, uh, which might mean many things, but let's say it hasn't been very 
easy or beautiful. Uh, but it's okay because along the journey, I, I learned a lot. I am who I am as a result of that as well. I made it. it it's, it's okay. So, yes, two different answers. Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a brother. Uh, we kind of grew up together and we, 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 we're very close in terms of age, not very close, unfortunately, uh, on the other side. And the two little brothers from my father's second marriage, uh, which live in Milan, and uh, they're lovely. Uh, so, yes, as I said, it's kind of complicated family. My father at the, at the moment is in China. Uh, yeah, so my father is an electronical engineer. So it's very much into robotics and automation, now artificial intelligence and so on. And my mom at that time, she was an housewife, then turned into a teacher when we grew up and she, she needed something to, to do in, in her own life. So I would say from that perspective, kind of an, a typical Italian family. Uh, so yeah, technology all around. And that's how I ended up in my first career in technology, just following my father's uh, footsteps because it was probably the easiest thing to do. Yeah, that that was really something that I was curious about because looking at your profile on LinkedIn, you see your your education um, really starts with uh, technology and then goes on to where you start digging into uh, psychology and and leadership, and you have uh, studies. I would say you've got coursework from Yale, MIT, Harvard, Wharton Business School. I mean, your your education is extensive, and then your your actual your actual experience within the corporate world is is really impressive. So, um, how did that transition come about? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Dave. Um, because for uh, 20 years of my life, my, 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 I would say my job, not even my career, my job, because it was actually just a job for me, was um, revolving around the IT world. I realized pretty soon it wasn't for me, or at least I wasn't feeling excited every day. But again, I was in Italy at that time. That's kind of what you do, right? You just go to work, you tick boxes, you buy a house, then you don't realize that it becomes a trap, but you just keep going because that's how life works. And especially because other people around you, that's what they do. They don't complain. And if you complain, they tell you that you shouldn't because that's, that's how it works. And you don't have any reference of life that could be different, you sense, it could be different, but you don't really have a reference. Uh, so that's how um, I stayed for 20 years in IT, moving from IT to digital marketing. It was a whole point I tried to change, but the feeling was always the same to the point that I thought it was just me. Okay, there's something wrong with me. Um, I didn't know at that time there was nothing wrong with me, but there was something wrong in the way I was thinking about my career. Um, so I started in IT simply because it was the easiest thing to do. It was the boom of the new economy in Italy at that time, as I say, my father was in that world, so it was very easy. And my pressure was to leave family as soon as possible, so I didn't have time to even think about university. I just needed money and to go away. And that's how I did it. And I bought a flat, which again became my trap. <laughs> At one point, you don't even think anymore. Is this making me feel alive? You just do it because you have to pay. Um, so I stayed in that career for a long time. 
and it was mostly in IT. There was no education on my side until at one point I realized out of the blue um, that I developed throughout the years a huge passion for history, contemporary history. I, I knew myself so little that I didn't even know uh, I had this interest. Um, so what I did at one point, I studied at university, but purely for um, you know, the development of my passion. And those seven years while I was studying and working, it helped me bear the unfulfillment that I was having during the day in my job, because the passion was so fulfilled that that was kind of balanced. Uh, but then in 2012, I graduated. I got my degree, fine. But then I, I felt really empty because I had to go back to a full-time work that gave me nothing except for the salary. So that's the moment where I decided to move to London. Um, not because I loved London, to be honest, or I never really had the idea of moving abroad. I mean, in Italy, we're very much static. We're in one of the most beautiful countries in the world. So why should you leave it? That's not really our mentality. So I did it purely because I realized I needed another mindset. If I wanted to find another career, I had to go away from the mindset that kept me stuck. So I moved here with the idea, okay, I have a degree in history, maybe that's my passion, that's what I should do. So I came here, I tried to find a job in, in, the, in the history world. I even did a master here, I loved it, but the career path didn't work, um, which ultimately was a good thing because they realized it's something that I truly love and truly passionate about it, but that's not my career, my ideal career path. That's not what makes me feel alive, makes me feel passionate. So all the studies that you've seen after that is because at one point, thanks to the fact that my career in history didn't develop, I realized how I should think about my career. And if what I want is to feel alive, I need to do what makes me feel alive, not just what I'm passionate about. And yes, if I'm passionate, I feel alive. But to feel truly alive, it has to think all the boxes of my being my personality, my ideas, my gift, and so on. So that's how I realized that that didn't work. And when I realized who I was and that fulfillment would have been, you know, I could have reached fulfillment only by bringing who I am into what I do, then a new world opened up and, and I realized that this career in coaching and training would have been the best fit for what I bring into the world. And that's when I started studying. And then I went to, they're all online courses that I did because of course I was based here in London. And the more I was studying and the more I was loving it, the more I was growing and the more I realized this is what I'm here on this planet for. And how do I know this? It's because when I do this type of things, I'm, I'm full of intuitions and insight and things that in theory I shouldn't really know, but it kind of comes from inside. That, that tells me I'm on the right path. It's because I can give without exactly knowing everything, but I get it because I am in my element. So that's how the movement from IT, history, and then finally neuroscience and psychology happened because I realized who I am, what I bring into the world, how my brain works. And then I decided that if, if that's what, what I'm truly naturally good at, that's what I should turn into a, at this point, a career, not a job anymore, but a real career. So that's how it happened. Let, let's start with 
what you do right now, the clients that you work with, are you focused more on helping people find their passion in a career that may not be the one that they're in? Or do you primarily help executives develop their leadership abilities so that they can bring their organization to a, a higher performing level? Or is it actually both things? Yeah. Both things, Dave. Um, but because this might create a little bit of confusion, I'm actually creating a new website. So I'm starting a new company uh, where other people are involved, which is called the Career Change Maker. So I can separate and remove this confusion from my business so that I, I will keep working with leaders and executives on a one-to-one -one basis and with my corporate training. But everything that is related in finding the career that will make you feel alive will fall under the umbrella of the careerchangemaker.com, which will be live soon. Um, because I understand that this can be confusing, but what these two things have in common is my experience, of course, uh, but also my neuroscience-based approach. So in a few words, I use how the brain works. And when I say this, I'm not talking about the mind, I'm talking about the brain, which means the dynamics and processes that happen inside the brain that then determines certain uh, psychological attitudes and behaviors. So by understanding how the brain works, I end up working both sides, career changes and leaders, because I explain them in very simple and practical, relatable terms, how the brain works and how to use it, how to make the most of it. Um, why? Because there's a reason if people are stuck, let's talk about people stuck in their career. Um, it's, I mean, I know this very well because I had 20 years of failed attempts to change. The reason I was stuck is because I was stuck here. Because technically speaking, the opportunities for more fulfilling lives and careers, they were there. I just couldn't see them. You can say that, well, you couldn't see them, Bruna, because you were confused. Yeah, but also because I didn't know how to use my brain properly. So I was confused. I didn't know what to do about it. Except for talking to other people. But in all honesty, I didn't meet many people in, in Italy who um, changed career, especially when they you know, were living on their own, paying a mortgage. So there was no way out. Um, when my clients learn how the brain works, they know what to do. But you need to understand the dynamics in order to be in control of your behavior. Otherwise, you're just a victim of what is happening internally. And it doesn't help that around people tells you, people tell you on social media or on many talks or books that your brain is an incredibly powerful machine. Yeah, we kind of know that by now, but what's the impact if you, did, if you don't tell us how it works? So knowing that the brain, it is an incredibly powerful machine, it doesn't help. To me, it was incredibly frustrating. Either you tell me how to use it, but don't tell me. Leave me in my ignorance, thinking that that's who I am, that's what I can do, that's what God wants for me, and that's it. Uh, because I suffered from this a lot, as I said, I didn't exactly have an easy life and I had to uh, overcome a lot of things on my own. I know how much easier it would have been if someone would have told me, that's how you function. That's how you can make the most of what you have. I had to learn it the hard way. Um, I think I turned my poison into medicine by turning this into a gift for others. 
So my job today, both for leaders and career changers, is, is tell them when they're stuck, what is happening or what is not happening, and most importantly, how to solve it by using this properly. And I can tell that they make huge shifts when they understand how they function. Because people know a lot of things. I mean, today between um, self-help books, professional development courses, quotes, uh, uh, online stuff, blog posts, coaches, consultants, there's a lot of information out there. Lots of techniques, lots of tips, but they don't really stick. Maybe just a few. I noticed that they, um, tools and tips tends to stick when people understand the why. The why and the how. The technique itself, it might not work because if you go in blank when you're on stage for a public speech, you know that you have to do a few things. But if your prefrontal cortex is not there because you're just panicking, you won't remember those techniques. So it's much more useful to understand the process, what is mechanically happening, so you can calm down what's happening and then bring your prefrontal cortex back so you can think again. That's much more powerful, in my opinion. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanics of the brain and, and really how someone can overcome that, that feeling of being stuck? Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about the mechanics. So the best example I can give you here is called the hand model of the brain developed by neuroscience uh, scientist Dave, uh, Daniel Siegel. Uh, this is really, really important, Dave, because when people understand these, they understand a lot about human behavior and they can give better explanation of what's going on, things that we've seen during the pandemic or in other tough moments in our history. So. Um, uh, let's talk about this, the hand model of the brain. Uh, imagine that our brain is can be represented by our hand, okay? So there is a part of the brain that is in charge of the management of the emotions that is called the limbic system and is the internal side of the brain. Then there is the most rational side of the brain, which is this, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is more external. So if we want to represent this with our hands, we could say that the limbic system is here. The prefrontal cortex is the most external side. This part is in charge of reasoning, logic, causes and effects, and is also the part of the brain that consumes most energy of the whole brain, which overall is the part of the body that consumes most energy total. So around 25% of the energy of the body is consumed by the brain. Now, why this is, this, is so important, Dave? Because this, this might be the reason why you're stuck sometimes. So our mental energy works like a funnel. You can always have your tank full of energy after a good eight, seven, eight hour uh, good night's sleep. So in the morning will be full of energy. But during the day, it tends to go like that. Now, if you don't make the correct use of your brain, which means, for example, you waste too much energy in the morning, it will go like that. And it means you end up at the end of the day, no uh, mental energy for your thinking, for your playing with your children or for the things that are important for you, including thinking about your next career. So there are many reasons why you can be stuck. But one of these is, for example, not understanding how the mental energy works. And if you, uh, as, as I used to do, uh, postpone 
things like thinking about, I, mean, I want to change career, I don't feel alive. And if you want to do it in the evening, but you completely use all your energy, completely use all your energy, you don't have it. So you think that you are confused and you're stuck because you don't know what you want, but the reality is you don't have the energy to think about it. So that's just one other thing. Um, again, going back to the hand model of the brain, as we say, amongst the, the whole brain, the, the prefrontal cortex is the one that takes more energy. Now, what happens is through the spinal cord, the limbic system is connected to the rest of the nervous system. Okay, so something happens outside um, and we feel some emotions. Emotions are energy in motion. So something happens and through the nervous system, those information arrive to the limbic system. Now in the limbic, limbic system, there is a gland that produces neurotransmitters, which are also known as hormones. Uh, and the most known are serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine. You probably heard all of them. Now, what happens is um, when you are producing cortisol, cortisol is the stress hormone. Let's say, for example, you're on stage, you're, you're going to speak about something, and then suddenly you notice someone who's, you know, giving a bad expression with their face, and you think, oh gosh, they're criticizing me. It, it all happens in a matter of seconds. So you're not too rational about this, but you perceive there's some kind of danger. Real danger, perceived danger, the brain doesn't know it. It's perceived as a danger. So what happens is the brain responds um, with a fight or flight state. What that means physically is that in that moment, um, the limbic system starts producing cortisol, okay? The fact that it produces cortisol suddenly, uh, neurotransmitters are little parts that travel through the bloodstream. So it starts from here. So it suddenly is like if in what's happening in the brain is like floating. So the sudden production of cortisol does physically this effect. You can imagine it like this. So the prefrontal cortex is not there anymore. Now, that's the reason why you go blank on stage if you're not in control of your emotions. And in that moment, knowing what you've read on many public speaking books or tips that you heard, it doesn't really help because in that moment, you simply cannot think logically. In that moment, you are an emotional being <laughs> exposed in the world. But if you understand this, you also understand that in that moment, the only option you have is to find a way to bring your prefrontal cortex back. That's the only concern you should have in that moment. So if there is one technique that you need to focus on, it's that, because that can bring peace and all the rest. At the moment that you can think again, of course, you can be more in control of your behavior, rationalize that maybe that person is thinking about the Champions League and not necessarily was criticizing you and so on. So this also explains a lot about human behavior, as I said, because everyone is made in this way. Now, some people are more in control of this process. Some people, some people those more known as emotional, very emotional people are less in control of that. But if you understand this and you need to deal with someone and you remember these and you see that in that moment they're being very emotional, chances are something has triggered their cortisol. And if they are in this state, it makes no sense that you speak to them in a very rational way because they can't listen. So if you wanna help them or if you wanna rationalize with them, your job is through your language, body language, tone of voice, 
and uh, attitude to bring this back. Maybe help them breathe, calm down, have a walk, all these techniques known as to calm down our nervous system. So back to the initial questions, that's how I help people uh, either in their leadership development or in their career change, or to be honest, anything in between, by understanding how they function and how what that means in their specific context. I've never actually heard it described in that way, but how that plays out in so many different interactions that we have every single day. You know, it can be as simple as somebody else is in that state and their behavior towards you makes, you know, brings you to that state. Oh, it happens all the time. Yes. So, so now you're both in that state and nothing good is gonna come out of that interaction. Uh, so it's it takes somebody to recognize it. And what what techniques do you uh, employ to bring somebody you know, have somebody bring their prefrontal cortex back online. Okay, so uh, let me first say something about what you said before, and then I'm happy to answer about this. What you said is correct, of course, if we are both in a threatened state, it's a mess. This is the reason why many books, and one of the most famous was uh, Dale Carnegie with How to Win Friends and uh, How to Influence How to, how win, to win Friends and Influence People. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a bestseller of, of all time. He said a lot of things at that time. I think that, that book was published in 1936. It's been super successful since then, but it's again, even more successful now because neuroscience has proved that what he said at that time was true. So while it was an intuition for him, it's actually proved true by what the new technologies are teaching us about the brain. So the, that's why he said, and neuroscience confirms, the best way to win an argument is to avoid it. The thing is, you should never arrive at that stage because if you're at that stage, you already know in advance that you won't win. Now, probably this is known. A lot of people have read this, that you should, you should avoid arguments, which makes sense, Dave. It's a nice thing to say, but when you are there, you're fighting, you just don't remember this tip. And especially if you don't understand why. Now you understand the why, because if you have an argument, Still, you want to bring home a result. But if it's heated enough to become an argument, you're not going to win anyway. So the reason why you want to win an argument is because you want to bring a result at home. So if you are in a situation that you realize what is happening internally, and you realize that the other person uh, is directly or indirectly threatening your emotional state, you just want to step away. So you don't want to arrive at that point. And not because you want to be a good person, it's because you want to bring a result home. So this requires a lot of emotional intelligence, which is another huge topic I work on. So the first thing is to avoid the argument, to avoid two emotional beings fighting and not understanding each other, which is what happens in you know families as well a lot. I wish I knew this a long time ago. Um, to, to answer this question, how do we bring people back? Uh, I want to give you an example here. I don't know if it happened in the US as well, but it was actually, I think, a phenomenon that happened all over the world. 
during the pandemic and the beginning of the pandemic, you might remember there were a lot of people everywhere in Italy, in the UK, in Turkey, everywhere, uh, suddenly buying a lot of loo rolls. Do you remember this phenomenon? <laughs> I mean, of course, it's an important uh, thing to have in the house, but if it's really going to be a catastrophe, I mean, why are you thinking specifically about that? Um, there was no way that you could rationalize in that moment, people at the supermarket trying to fight with each other to, to collect them. There was no way that you could rationalize with them in that moment that that's not the most vital thing if something really horrible happens. It's no way, because in that moment, they were completely triggered. Well, that's it, there's, there's no way. Um, and this is a technique that is very much utilized, as you will recognize, in marketing, and in politics as well. Politicians, bad politicians, and uh, bad marketeers, they use this a lot. They play a lot with your fear. You know, there's a common enemy. Um, we've seen wars and wars based on a common enemy used to trigger fears uh, in people so that they went into that state. And of course you can control emotional being in that state much more easily. Um, it happens in marketing as well. So when you recognize that you be something is trying to trigger your fear, that's what they want to do. Uh, buy this immediately or tomorrow one of your relatives will die. I mean, crazy things like that. Uh, what they want is to just create this state. Why? Because they want your money. And if in that moment you have your credit card handy, you are in trouble. And the day after, of course, you're going to regret it, but there's not much you can do. So understanding these helps understanding each other, but also how to protect ourselves from bad people who really want to have us stop thinking. Um, now, to, to your question, I'm really sorry. Back to your question, um, how do you communicate with someone who is in an emotional state if you have to rationalize them with them? The best thing to do is to match, uh, for example, their uh, breathing rhythm so that you can create uh, a subtle sense of rapport with them. You wanna speak, You basically the technique is you have to meet them where they are. Don't expect the opposite. So if you're in a rational state and they're not, of course you can't expect this. What you need to do is to go back, meet them where they are, and then you can bring them back with you somehow. So how do you do these? There are different techniques. One of these is building that kind of rapport, for example, by mirroring and pacing their body language, their tone of voice. You, you may have heard of that when, when it comes to NLP, there's neuro-linguistic programming. There's a lot of talking about these type of techniques. I don't necessarily agree with, because NLP is another uh, discipline that is very much utilized by politicians, by bad marketeers and so on. So it's another topic. We may not want to talk about this now, but there are a few elements that you can pick up from there that can be really useful to build rapport with people that you want to calm down. As I say, mirroring, pacing, um, breathing. So normally people who are in that state, you can verify this with yourself. And when you are in that state, you don't breathe calmly. You tend to be agitated okay so that's a signal that something is needed you as a good observer 
might notice this in the other person. You may want to start breathing like the other person purely to create that connection. So then after a little while, when they subconsciously feel safe because you are in the same state, then you can start calming down your breathing and you will naturally calm down the other person's breath as well. So these are some of the techniques. If you can, you may want to take that person for a little walk. You Basically, you need to calm down their nervous system. So everything that can work in that sense. Breathing is the number one thing. So as much as possible, regular breaths, not necessarily deep. If they're deep and regular, even better. But even though, uh, if it cannot be deep, but it can be regular, like three, four out, three, four out, that will definitely help. Because the problem there is that the, if you notice this on yourself, you will notice that your brain, your breath, and your heart are strictly connected. When you are agitated, you tend to breathe in a very shallow way. Your heart tends to be much faster and your brain spins. So it's a cycle. The three of them are always uh, related. But can you, Dave, ask your brain to calm down when you're spinning? Try to remember the moments where you were spinning. Could you tell your brain, calm down? It's interesting that, that we're talking about this. I, I wrote about it in my book. Um, there, there are tools that I've employed, but I, I had to be taught these. Um, you know, as the the incident commander on a large scale scene where there's a, a lot of unknowns and you're trying to bring order to chaos. And with so many different things going on, you know, you're being bombarded by information, uh, noises, you know, bad you're looking at bad things there you're asking your people to go put their bodies in harm's way to bring people out that will without fail cause you know the those stress hormones to to flood into your system and if you aren't aware of what's going on like you're saying if you're not aware of what's going on your your limbic system gets hijacked and you're in that state of fight flight or freeze end up with tunnel vision your decision making ability becomes reduced so one of the the methods that i i talk about in the book is really once you recognize that that's happening and and prepare for it ahead of time because you know it's going to happen. So when those events occur, having the, the wherewithal to pause, focus on your breathing, take a step back, like physically just take a step back. It, I don't know if it's, I, I, I'm guessing it's a subconscious reaction that action of stepping back seems to broaden your view and by breathing focusing on your breathing and and what i talk about is box breathing breathing in for a count of four holding for four exhaling for four holding for four and and do that four times 
it takes roughly 60 seconds, but that is enough time for you to calm down, allow your, your, uh, your focus to open back up and, and take in a lot more information rather than just one detail. And you can start to say, okay, this is, these are all the things that I've got going on. These are some questions that I need to be asking um, the people that I have inside the building. All of that information can help me form a logical plan of action and identify resources that I need to be successful in that event. Um, but more to, to your point, if you're not prepared for that trigger and your brain gets hijacked, being able to calm yourself down when you're not aware of what's going on, you're just in that emotional state, I would say no, it's very difficult without somebody saying, all right, let's, let's think about this. Or it, it normally for me, it takes somebody else, unless I'm by myself. <laughs> normally it takes somebody else with a calm demeanor to recognize, hey, tell me exactly what you're feeling. Like what, what's causing this? And if just that little recognition that I'm not completely attached to my logical brain, I, I tend to now, this is, you know, years of practice. Because <laughs> I, I know that uh, before, Admitting that I was in an emotional state in an irrational state just made me more angry. <laughs> and, and that just complicates the situation even more. It does. So it, I, I think in some circles, people identify it as maturity, but it really is just having that self-awareness, which is a component of emotional intelligence. Um, no, I, I really, really like how you explain everything. Um, when, can we go back to how you use your energy, you know, because when we're talking about the functioning of the brain, if, if, you've get, if you've gotten enough sleep and your brain is full power in the morning, I, I'm wondering, do you coach people on how to manage that energy use or how to 
use their time more wisely to take advantage of the energy in the morning. That's part of my job. Um, partly my job is the typical job of a coach where I help them where they need it the most. Uh, but my specific approach also adds this learning about the brain and the functioning so that they can make the most of it. So productivity is one of those, of course, of the biggest topics uh, because life is hectic for everyone, but it can be a little bit less hectic if you want, again, if we understand how we function, and uh, how to avoid this. This is the big problem. If you don't know it, and you don't, because we haven't received instruction manuals when we were born, um, if you don't know it, you might make mistakes that will cost you so much. And um, because the, it is true that the brain is an incredibly powerful machine, the brain will do everything it can to avoid this. Because it, for, for those listening and you can't see, what oh, she's yeah. <laughs> doing, she's making the shape of a funnel. So in the morning, when we're at full energy, you're looking at the the broadest part of that funnel. And then as your <coughs> as your day goes on, it quickly tapers in to the skinny part of the funnel, uh, which is probably right around uh, evening time when you get home from work when you're less likely to have patience with those you love. Exactly. Now, the good thing here is that the brain knows that and is built on a self-preservation principle. So the brain will avoid at all cost to have you do that. Why? Because without mental energy, you can die. It's really part of our survival system. The number one job of the brain is not to think, but it is to allow you to survive. And mental energy is vital because if there's no mental energy, even that mechanism, fight, flight, or freeze, it doesn't work. So you can really die, literally. So the job of the brain is to avoid at all cost waste of energy for something that is not vital. What that means is if you wanna do something that is really important to you, but you don't label it as vital, the brain will try not to do it, which is the reason why when my client, before they come to me, they try to change career as much as I try to do it. At one point, you go blank. You go blank because you're not making the correct use of your brain and the brain is impeding you to make a step that can kill you, potentially. It doesn't kill you, obviously, but it's perceived as a real danger. So there are techniques that you can apply to label something as vital and allow your brain to do it otherwise it will stop it because it perceives it as a as a big trouble and changing career is one of the most triggering fears like public speaking snakes and dying so you know again that's about understanding how the brain works and how to make the best use of it so going back to your question and, and the funnel yes there are some techniques that you can apply but most importantly more than the technique I coach my people to understand the, the principle because then they're intelligent enough to understand on their own. So if you're curious about these, <clears throat> I'm happy to share that one of the uh, analogies I use the most and that they really love is the analogy of a stage, a theater stage, which reconnects with what you said before. I love Dave, when you say, when you get a step back, you gather a wider perspective on what's going on. It is true. 
And that's what we need to do when we feel confused. Even better if we do it with a box breathing that you, you mentioned before. So if you imagine the brain like a stage, uh, imagine that you're in the theater, okay? There's a stage in front of you, which is empty, and there is one actor. And then you're looking at the actor, and of course your attention is fully focused on him. And you can perceive nearly everything that he does. But if on the same stage appears another actor and another one, of course your attention is a little bit divided between the three, so you can perceive less of, of the three of them. If it's full of 20 actors doing something, of course there's much more confusion. Your attention is divided between all of them. Now you need to imagine the, the stage that your brain works like a stage. The more actors you put there, the more distracted it is which is the reason why they always say multitasking doesn't really work. It can work, but you make such an effort that you basically go into deplete all the energy in your funnel. So you want to use your brain like a stage, one actor at a time. Okay, let's be honest. 2022, planet Earth, maybe one actor at a time is not possible. But try to put two, three, four, not more than these, uh, vital steps at the same time, because it's having all of them at the same time on the stage that is burning more energy than is needed. It's too much divided attention. So when they understand these, they immediately review their typical day and they can see how they're wasting a lot of energy and why they love their kids so much. But when they go home, they lose their patience immediately. They say, but I love them. Yeah, it's not you. Really is the use that you make of your brain. You want to have energy at the end of the day for your kids? Then let's review how you organize your day based on the principle on the stage. So they know that they have to have a few actors at the same time, not more than that. And when they feel confused, it's not because there's something wrong with them. It's because they crammed that stage with, stage with too many things. Now, the, the, this is another mistake that people do. The most energy-consuming task, especially in a leadership position, is prioritizing. Prioritizing, technically, for the brain, is the most energy-consuming task. Why? Because to prioritize, by definition, you have to keep a lot of things on the same stage at the same time. That, it ta that takes a lot of energy. So if you want to prioritize well, you don't want to do this in the evening for the day after because you can't keep everything and keeping everything on the stage at the same time will take so much more energy. So you wanna do it in the morning. That's why they say do it in, on Monday morning for the week or early in the morning, because that's the moment where you have less, more energy. You can do it. Yes, it's gonna take a lot of energy, but at least that's it. And then you can move on. While in the evening, you will always kind of feel, do I remember everything? What was that thing that I should have remembered? It's just too much. So you want to do things that consume a lot of energy early in the morning. So you can ensure you're doing it in the best possible way. You can trust the process because you were fully lucid and then you can go about your day. So once again, this is another scenario in which understanding how it works gives them more, more power. For example, if they only have a session with me, normally it's a journey, but sometimes it can happen that they can have only uh, one or two sessions with me. I prefer to empower them with the knowledge of how they function. And then they are capable of finding a solution on their own rather than teaching them techniques. Hey, John, you should prioritize on Monday morning because that's when your brain is, is more fresh. It's not going to stick. 
it's not going to stick. But because what I say, they can review it in their mind many times because they can actually see, oh gosh, this is true. It happens every day. That tends to stick because they can recognize it's true. And they don't have to remember much. When they, once they see it and they know how they, they function, they know. Remembering a technique or a tip is not that important anymore because even if they don't remember it, by understanding the principle, they're capable of finding a solution on their own. We've covered a lot of ground. You've actually shared so many awesome tools that, that people listening can use in a lot of different aspects of their life, but they can use it every day. <clears throat> one, one thing that I'm curious about, and I, I tend to ask this question to certain people, and I've been asking it more frequently, because I, 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 I believe that there's quite a bit of value in this when talking with an expert, there's certain lessons that they've learned throughout their life that have stuck with them and they're still valuable and pertinent today in their life. And I tend to think of it in this way and right, wrong, or indifferent, this is how my brain works. I, I tend to look at somebody's life in about you know three stages. There's probably four, but at the time that I talk to somebody and they're, you know, pretty far along in their career, they're viewed as an expert in their, in their field. They've learned a lot of valuable lessons. Some of those lessons were learned early on in the first stage of their life. You know, when they're still under the roof of their parents or, you know, the, the early years where they're, they're growing, they're developing their personality, they're learning those valuable lessons that they then take on with them into college in the early part of their career. And then in that stage, they learn some more lessons. They, they fall down, skin their knees, you know, and, and learn what to do and what not to do to be successful. And then they reach this part of their, their life where they've learned a lot of valuable lessons. They've caught their stride and they're able to pass on a lot of those lessons to, to people that they're leading or are important in their life. But we still learn lessons in that and that stage, it makes us better. For you, what would you say are the three most important things? One being in the first phase of your life, one being in the second phase of your life, and the third being now, that, that you believe is, is valuable and, and worth sharing with the people listening, um, because I think if you found value in it throughout your life, there's somebody else out there in one stage of their life or another that may not have discovered that lesson yet. And, and so I was just hoping maybe you could 
identify those and, and share with us. Yes, willingly, especially I'm happy to share those lessons that I've learned the hard way, uh, because I think there's, there's power in these. And um, if you can help others avoid sufferings and tough times, of course, I'm more than happy. And maybe that's why I chose this career after all. Um, the first lesson that I've learned um, is that really poison can be turned into medicine. Uh, this is a concept that I've learned through Buddhism. I met Buddhism uh, in 2006. So I was probably already 20 in my uh, late 20s. It's been a huge revolution, human revolution for me. It changed completely my mindset and the way I saw myself, but especially the way I saw my past. Uh, of course, I was very angry. Um, and it didn't help when people say that I shouldn't and that I should have forgiven my parents and, you know, a lot of beautiful things. But at that time, once again, Dave, either you tell me how or it makes no sense that I should forgive. It makes no, I mean, I, I always hated these. And when they another thing that I hated it was when they when people say you should find the answer within yourself, because I was asking a lot of questions. You can imagine huh? why this, why that, why me? Find the answer within yourself. I mean, Dave, I'm Italian. I wanted to burst into flame immediately. I hated it. You can't say this to someone who is in that state. I was really furious. If you want me to go back to this and embrace an advice like this, which is correct, but you have to tell me how. They didn't tell me how because no one knew it. So I discovered this on my own. Uh, Buddhism has been the, the moment where I truly embrace this and I understood the how. Now, the, the point is everything happens for a reason, as I say, you just have to believe that it is happening. It, it, life is in this way anyway, but things happen anyway. There's only one chance that you have to be happy and that is learning to handle the tough things, finding the medicine in the poison. It's always possible, even in the most horrible things. We had authors like Viktor Frankl, you may have heard of um, the, the, the famous book. Um, a Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, A Man's Search for Meaning. There's another one of a woman that he met after all called Edith Grave, I think she's called. Um, she wrote a very similar book. Um, they, they both say the same things. You can find beauty, whatever beauty means for you in everything, even in a concentration camp. I mean, if he made it, I have no excuses, no matter how bad my situation can be. So that was a huge lesson. So our job is only find a way to turn that poison into medicine. Your job is to find that way, not to question the why, the how, why me. It makes no sense. It's just wasting a lot of energy. Just find a way. Accept that it should have happened anyway. Your job is happening to help you develop something. Find that something. So shift your attention to that. So that's definitely... The big lesson I've learned and embraced and reshared in my first uh, life, let's call it. Buddhism represented a, a turning point where I would say my second life, a much better one, started because I was really at peace. Um, so the, the second lesson is because calming down my nervous system, I had more space to explore my inner world without anger. And I could see that there was something wrong, which was my career. Um, so there wasn't any 
alignment between what I had inside and what I was doing outside. This was paying the bills, but here I had a heaven which I couldn't express. So this disalignment led me to understand what then became the title of my TEDx talk. I gave a TED talk called Bring Who You Are Into What You Do. And I, and I would say that this is the second big lesson that I'd like to share, that you want to build a life, a career, a life, a partnership, everything you want to do has to tick the boxes of who you are as a person. Because otherwise you're working and living like a human doing. But we are human beings. We want to express our being through the doing. What we do instead is thinking about our careers or where to live or the partner that we want based on a series of criteria that we may have in mind. But the problem is we absorb this from the society, family, or where we lived in. You want to have something that is aligned with what you have inside. But what I didn't know is, is that I didn't know myself. If I don't know myself, the only thing I'm left with is the criteria that someone else has given me. So you want to remove all that to do these self-analysis. This is actually a big part of my job, especially for career change or, or even in leadership. To, be, to understand what kind of leader you want to be, you need to understand who you are and leverage the gifts that you bring. You don't just want to become a great leader as the book said you should be. You want to leverage what you have, but understanding what you have, therefore your being, is always the, the first step. So this is the, the second lesson. Really make choices that allow you to bring who you are into what you do, because that's the only key to fulfillment and aliveness. You want to feel alive after all. And the third step, I think the third lesson is very much aligned with the second one. And I'm realizing has very much to do with my values. Today, there's a lot of talking about values and the importance of our values and knowing them and making choices that resonate with them. Because when I was 20, no, there wasn't much talking about this, but probably I wouldn't listen anyway. But today I realize I'm 44, all the choices that I've made, if I observe the past, that they were always guided by this set of principles that I have inside. The problem is before I didn't uncover them. So I likely acted in accordance with them. I just didn't know them. So I, did, I, I was always second guessing myself. Am I doing the right thing? Yeah, but right for whom? Who are you trying to, to make happy here? Well, I don't know. Now that I know exactly who I am and what are my values, I don't need to make anyone else happy. I just know I need to stick with them. And sometimes it's tough, especially when it comes to ethic or friends' choices or you know, trying not to judge when during the pandemic or the war, people act in a certain way. Sometimes it is very difficult, but there, it brings some level of peace because that is true alignment. This is who I am. It's not a set of values like honesty, integrity, uh, loyalty, because they are somehow socially expected for me. It's the value that I chose. And if these three are not there, it doesn't matter as long as I know uh, what is really important for me and I make choices that resonate with that. What other people think, I'm 44, don't care much. I'm not sure, at 20, I would have said the same. But I would say that the third lesson uh, that I would love to share is keep learning about yourself. Be absolutely clear, not on what you want, not on what you should be, not what you should say, but who you really are 
And you do this by observing yourself in the past, not sitting down and thinking, because this can kind of cheat on you. You can still be responding to expectations. So you don't have to think, you have to observe. Connect all the dots, and that will reveal the grand design that is you. Then use this as a compass to make choices in your life. Good or bad is not, is not about general principles, or as Jung said, this generalized voice. Jung defined generalized voice, the voice of people. You know, these things that we have in our mind, you should do this, you should do that. Forget it. Just build the compass that truly resonates with who you are and then make choices that are aligned with that. That's the key to happiness, in my opinion. Nothing else. I was just on uh, another podcast yesterday. It was a really deep conversation. Um, we talked a lot about philosophy and, and really the, the meaning of life or our purpose here on earth. And what I proposed to the host was, I, I think there's this common thread throughout history. Humankind has, has sat around thinking about, you know, why am I here? What's my purpose? What's the meaning of life? And really, I, I think that what we're all chasing is that that sense of well-being happiness joy we we want to find that in what we're doing and i think the purest form that we can find is that that sense of that sense of joy that sense of accomplishment when you help somebody else achieve what they're searching for their version of success. And if we can explore ourselves and find out how we can best add value to others using our gifts, I think that we have a, a much higher probability of finding happiness and, and, and really finding purpose in our lives. Um, that was that was the conversation that we had yesterday, and it was really interesting because I guess for any philosopher, the eternal question is why. For every answer you find, you ask the question why. And so he kept on asking me why, you know, why, why this, why that. And at some point. I imagine that conversation could have gone on for hours, but it would have been frustrating to a point to keep on hearing why, right? Does it matter once you've actually found that purpose and meaning? If, if it aligns with who you are, Interesting, right? I agree. So the question, perhaps, I mean, to a certain extent, the why I think is important, but it can be an endless journey. I'm more for the how. Okay, forget the 
How do we sort this out? How do we do it? How do I find the answer within myself? How do I change or anything else that we're facing? Um, so I think a certain level of questions, because I'm a coach after all, they pay me to ask questions. So a certain level of questions, of course, is always welcome. But at one point it has to turn into something concrete. And that's where I think neuroscience can, can be the answer to a certain extent because it tells you the how. By understanding the mechanism of the brain and the human behavior, you might not understand the why that person reacted in that way and it doesn't really matter. As a leader, you need to sort out the conflict between two, two, um, two team members. If you understand what's going on in their brain, you might find your way to calm things down. Can you do it without knowing the why? Yeah. With the why, only focusing on the why, can you sort out that very practical problem? I don't think so. So I think it depends on the context. But of course, in philosophy, the why is a very important uh, question. In a practical life, it is to a certain extent only, I think. I want to share a, a tool that, that I teach, and I, I used it in my fire department career. And it goes back to that the, the same context of being in the position of incident commander when you're being bombarded by all this outside noise, uh, action, uh, emergencies, all of that external uh, noise, we'll, we'll say, that can narrow your view. And you take that step back and you breathe. And I, I think that you can find similar actions in religion and in, in Buddhism and meditation where you're, you're calming your mind and looking inside, you know? Uh, and one of the tools that I used while in command of large incidents is uh, an acronym. Uh, CAN, C-A-N. It stands for conditions, actions, needs. And as the incident commander, I would request a CAN report from uh, an officer that was operating uh, on the inside of a structure fire, maybe in the action circle of a, a large-scale you know, technical rescue, something like that. I would ask them for a CAN report, and they knew that they needed to relay to me the current conditions, the actions that were underway, and what they would need moving forward to successfully complete that mission. And you can apply the, that same technique when you're trying to identify a solution to whatever you're experiencing. You take that time, focus on your breathing, and it gives you the ability to have a, a broader view of what's going on in your life. And you, what are my current conditions? What actions are underway? What actions have I been taking to, to improve my life? And what do I need to improve upon that? And those three questions that we can ask ourselves can can help us find the answers. So, well, 
Bruno, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and, and sharing so much information. For, for those listening that may be interested in having you come speak to their organization, or maybe they've got an event coming up that they'd like you to you know, do the keynote for, or just maybe they're looking to, to get some high level coaching to help them in their career, help them change careers, help them find what's important to them. How would somebody connect with you? What's the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, best way would be, of course, to connect on LinkedIn, where I'm quite active, and also contact me on my website, through my website, which is www.brunadepalo.com. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll answer as soon as possible or um, you know just via email bruna at bruna .com. Uh, I'd love to yeah I mean as I said my way to turn my poison into medicine is sharing everything that I've learned the hard way uh, or everything that I got uh, passionate about and, and bring into the to the service of others so more than happy to, to, to have a chat and see how I can help really really happy to do so well, I will have the, the link to your website and the link to your uh, LinkedIn page in the show notes. So for those listening, just go to the show notes and you'll be able to uh, click on the link and uh, check out Bruna DePaulo. And also, I would, I would encourage people to view your, your TED talk. Um, pretty impressive. So, yeah. Uh, Thank you so much, Bruna. Thank you, Dave. My pleasure, truly. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.